Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Chiefs with me, Tom Edwards. Today we're looking back through 2020's impressive catalogue of interviewees to share with you the best bits from a year that was quite unlike any other. Indeed, The Chiefs was in fact started as something of a reaction to the challenges the pandemic brought to businesses and those at their helm across the globe. And so it follows that we begin today by looking back to April, when the CEO of Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis, Vas Narasimhan, joined our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, for the inaugural episode of the programme. Vas and Tyler began by discussing the importance of benchmarking. Let's take a listen. It's almost unprecedented the amount of, of benchmarking you see in daily news feeds around the world. What are the Austrians doing? Uh, how has the New Zealand PM dealt with things? You've got then people scratching their heads in, in Canada and the UK saying, well, why is it working this way? Why, why are there no dates attached to anything? Do we need to look to Geneva? Do we need to be looking to a philanthropic billionaire sitting in Seattle to be giving some type of foundation that everyone should be working towards? Because, of course, on one side, yeah, nations are sovereign and then they can do what they want. But there's so much, you know, disparity between different approaches to coming out of lockdowns and, and also what, what daily hygiene measures are as well. It's interesting. We had we had an exponential effect of a virus. It came, you know, Star of course started in the last part of last year. Uh, it, growth was exponential. Exponential things tend to catch human beings, uh, you know, by surprise. And so in March we had this explosion, and you know, then people are scrambling. I think it's very uh, understandable that we have this huge variation in how countries respond based on. A, frankly, a lack of knowledge. We don't have enough scientific knowledge around the virus, around the medical care, around the treatment, around the public health measures. What I see happening now is an exponential growth in our understanding and on on science-based progress. When you look at it in the next few months, we will have probably 100 clinical trials read out. We will have a great deal of increase. I think there are, are now over 500, sorry, over 5,000 publications, perhaps on PubMed around this virus in some form or another, over 500 clinical trials running. And so we're going to have this explosion in knowledge. And what I hope will happen over the course of the summer, before any second waves or, or future outbreaks hit, is we could have a more standardized approach, hopefully regionally, maybe globally, based on that exponential growth in knowledge. I think that's what's coming. Uh, it's you know we have to be patient. It has to be done rigorously. But I would hope by the fall we can have a, a better, more harmonized approach around the world. One thing we're hearing from leadership around the world, you know, and whether we're in in Berlin or or we can be in in Tokyo, looking forward to to the games next year. Everyone talks about the vaccine, and and many are saying you know there is not going to be a any type of normal normal uh, again until there's a vaccine. But yet we know there are many um, infectious diseases where vaccines don't exist, um, and and we we get by day by day. Is there a, a Novartis view, or do you have a personal view? On, on the notion of the vaccine and, and how critical it is for, of course, measures to be properly lifted and we, and we move back to a place that I think most of us want to be again. Yeah, so my view as a, now this is more as a, a clinician scientist uh, than a quote-unquote Novartis view, I think, it is, is that we're going to see incremental improvements over time that will enable us to, to bring back life to quote unquote normal, though it's never, it's, it will always, life is always evolving. We always feel like we go back to a normal, but actually 
you know, life is always going to keep evolving on this planet. But uh, I, I think we're going to understand better how to use existing medicines to mitigate the severity of the disease. I think clinical practice is going to is already learning how to manage this disease better and better. I think we'll understand which public health measures work uh, and don't work. I think some of the first wave of drug, new drugs that are being developed, whether those are antibodies, convalescent sera, which we get from infected patients uh, who have recovered, or other small molecule drugs will come, which if, even if they don't cure the infection, will mitigate it. And then you could see a world where Yes, eventually we'd like to get to a, a vaccine, but there's going to be a lot of progress even before that. I do think with respect to vaccines, we have to be humble uh, in terms of our expectations and that we want to ensure a vaccine is both safe and effective. And the risk-benefit equation flips for a vaccine. I spent um, most of my career developing vaccines, whereas with most of the drugs we develop, we know somebody's infected. And then, of course, we want to treat to uh, to, to remove the infection or at least mitigate the effect of the infection. With a vaccine, we give it to an otherwise healthy population. And despite the 2 million plus cases confirmed now around the world, it's worth remembering that means there are over 7 billion people who are not infected, but then you would want to expose to a vaccine. So even a relatively small side effect in that vaccine could have negative consequences from a benefit-risk standpoint. So to ensure that we have a safe and efficacious vaccine is, is really important, and it's not as straightforward as just getting a vaccine that generates an immune response. It has to have a clean safety profile as well. Do you think that if, if we go back to the, the public sector and if, and if we look at people who are sitting in health ministries, are there there's going to be this, this moment and living through a moment that people aren't going to put their foot on the gas until they see that something is, is coming down the track, that they're hearing announcements that vaccine trials are, are going well? Um, or again, do you think it's going to be multi-track? Some countries are going to say, look, you know, we need to push forward with our economy. We need to push forward with, with social life. And as you said, you know, will there ever be a normal normal? Maybe not. But uh, and other places are going to be much more risk averse. Or do you think it starts to flatten out? And and in a globalized world, everyone knows they need to move forward with a vision that yeah, a vaccine is somewhere in the future. But it, we it could be as you know, I don't know what are we a, a year out or three years out? We don't know, do we? We don't. We don't know. I, so I and I and I don't. I, I don't have a crystal ball as different countries react. But I do reflect on human history a lot. I'm a I'm a big. Uh, believer in kind of the big history books and, and how what well we can learn from them. And of course, we, we it's easy to forget that it, it's less than 50 years ago, we lived with many infections that uh, didn't have great vaccines that had great severity. Um, it, it's within, you know, post 1960s that we really had the explosion of vaccines that really brought down deaths from a range of infectious diseases and society operated. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if as psych the, the collective psychology gets more comfortable with this as we understand better, again, how to track and trace as diagnostics improve, as, a, as all the other things we've discussed um, start to get better. If our comfort levels will go up, we will still have to live with the fact there could be isolated outbreaks. We have isolated outbreaks of many things, whether it's measles still sadly in this world today meningitis, uh, you know, more severe things, uh, you know, in places like Africa with Ebola, and then we contain them. And so you could see a, a, an approach where I think incrementally we get to a better and better place and that collection of that 
that incremental progress and lets societies around the world completely get back to a more normal, normal way of living with the understanding that, you know, we will have to deal with uh, the, the outbreaks when they happen. That was Voss Narasimhan, the CEO of Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis, giving his outlook on the vaccine way back in April. For our next highlight, we take a return trip from Basel back to London to hear from the woman at the head of one of Europe's leading legacy titles, the Sunday Times. Tyler joined the freshly appointed editor, Emma Tucker, to look ahead to the future of print media and to discuss how integrating with digital would be key to its survival. When you arrived at the end of January, of course, you know, you'd been within the group, you'd been within the Times family. What did you inherit? And what is the opportunity that you see now? I mean, you're still just reforming the paper as we chat here. Well, I inherited an absolute machine. I mean, it's a, a very well-oiled, big tanker, the Sunday Times. What I said when I arrived was... You know, I think there's naturally some rivalry between the daily paper and the Sunday paper. And I think there was a feeling on the Sunday that they were missing out on the sort of digital transformation. So my message to the Sunday Times was, you have no idea what a huge advantage you have in digital. And my ambition is to make the Sunday Times the lead title in digital. Now, that advantage comes from the fact that I think pretty much unique in the world. If you look at the Times across seven days, so the Monday to Saturday, and the Sunday Times, the highest digital traffic comes on a Sunday. Now, I don't think that happens with any other legacy title anywhere. So not only do we get the most traffic and the highest amount of engagement on a Sunday, but also everything that a Sunday newspaper does, as I've just said, the kind of journalism that a Sunday newspaper should be doing, exclusive investigations, campaigns, those are all things that work very well in digital. So I arrived, the level of digital knowledge was not as high as it was on the Times, but my message was, you've got a huge advantage here and let's exploit it. And to be fair, they've all kind of really taken that message on board. And I think it's really excited the newsroom. And when you look at the digital proposition, because, you know, anyone who's grown up with a culture of Sunday papers, it is very hard to place. But of course, yes, you can have a tablet, you can have your phone. But what is the digital advantage that you see? Because of course, we can all remember those romantic times back in the in the 90s, when you'd go and get your first edition uh, somewhere at Piccadilly Circus, and then you're driving at bagels on Brick Lane, and then you'd go home, you know, and you'd read the paper and have a drink or whatever it was. Now, those romantic days, much of that is gone. For you, is that saying, okay, people are going to get a first look as soon as the site goes up, you know, just before midnight? What is sort of the digital value there, especially, as you say, when you're when you've got to not compete, but you've still got the BBC and other big beasts sitting around the world as well? The great news is, I don't think, obviously, print is in decline. That's no secret. But funnily enough, our print sales have actually held up very well during the lockdown. So the great advantage I think we have is not only do we remain strong in print, and obviously, we have a strong commitment to keeping the print paper distinctive, but at the same time, we can do very well in digital. So, for example, when we did the first Insight piece, I took the decision to publish it at six o'clock on Saturday night. Now, there was some resistance from the old guard, you know, oh, this will cannibalize our print sales. We shouldn't be doing this. But, you know, my point to them was we have distinct audiences as well. And as it happened, on both occasions, we published the Insight Read at six o'clock on a Saturday. They both got, particularly the first time around, enormously high traffic on the Saturday from Saturday to midnight. But then they got, as I would have predicted, the highest spike of traffic on 
Sunday morning because most of our readers who read us in digital would come in on Sunday morning. But what was really interesting was that the print sale also went up. So the idea that you're cannibalising, if anything, I think the fact that we put this big story up on six o'clock and it caused such a stir on social media acted, if anything, as a branding or promotion tool for the print sale. So far from cannibalising each other, I think the noise that the company, the digital publication actually pushed print sales the next day. Now, you, you won't necessarily get this every week, but my point to the newsroom is, you know, we have different audiences and the one doesn't cannibalize the other. Let's talk about audience for a second. You came from, I mean, it's been a few years now, you used to be at the Financial Times, you used to be my editor there, a paper which is still globally respected. I also feel as well that a lot of people are oddly saying for a global newspaper like the FT, it's actually been too UK focused in the midst of everything. Yeah, what opportunities do you see for the Sunday Times going beyond the shores of the UK? Are there opportunities to have a bigger digital global voice and have a different level of cut through when we look at The Economist, when we look at all these other pan-regional titles that are out there? The way things are going, the future is really difficult for legacy media, but it turns out that in the digital era, the quality media titles are the ones that are making the best fist of it. One of the things I always felt was that the Times and the Sunday Times slightly, we punched slightly below our weight you know and actually there's a slight lack of global ambition there now that doesn't mean we're going to take over the world but what i think the times and the sunday times should be doing is occasionally coming up with stories that have global cut through just like the new york times does the wall street journal does i think as the digital transformation continues it's likely that there will just be a handful of big quality media titles left and those I think obviously they have their core markets ours is the UK and that will always be our primary focus but it doesn't mean that we can't be producing bits of journalism that make waves you know at a wider level. On that point as well many who who are listening will not know because they're not following the trades it's not a big story yet your group is moving into radio I mean you're already in radio but there's going to be a bit of a of a rebranding does the Sunday Times have quite a role. I would imagine it would have a sizable role in this new world of the Times having a, well, will it be a debate? Listen, if you have a domestic radio station today, you have a global radio station today. I can imagine there's going to be a good listen on the Sunday morning, sometime in the autumn or whenever, whenever this thing is going to relaunch. Well, Times Radio is very exciting because one of the things that we want to do is to find new audiences. So we have our existing audience and by and large, it's older, uh, it's very male, it's an audience that either still consumes print media or grew up with print media and therefore likes to read a digital proposition that sort of follows a, a print pattern. But what we need to do is reach new audiences. So the Times Radio is a, a kind of opportunity to do that. So it's going to be skewed towards a slightly a younger audience, perhaps a broader audience. And I think, you know, it's a great opportunity for the Sunday Times because obviously what they want is for there to be very close collaboration between the two newsrooms and the new radio station. And given that we, our reporters, are working towards a weekly deadline, I've said to them that they need to be all over Times Radio. Let's spend a little time just on trying to run a newsroom. On one side, journalists, of course, are used to working in rather adverse uh, situations. So sometimes when I hear Oh, it's amazing that, you know, we were able to get a magazine, amazing to get a newspaper. It's like, you know, people have been through more than this and have still managed to get titles out all around the world in places which are are less well served by technology, by print. Nevertheless, you came in at a time, it must have been, oh my God, like all of a sudden this thing hits. Or have you just really seen this as a great opportunity to be running what is, of course, been an extraordinary story with holding power? Um, well, certainly of this century, but of, of maybe the last hundred years. 
It was very tricky. I didn't know that many people on the Sunday Times. You'd think I would because, you know, we work closely together to only two floors between the two titles. But the amazing thing is I didn't know many people. I hadn't had time to bring in any of my own people. I'd only been doing the job for a few weeks. I think it was four or five when basically, you know, lockdown happened and we were all dispersed. So I had embarked on a sort of series of getting to know people, getting to know the reporters, uh, the editors. That was cut short very quickly. So my sort of grand tour hadn't finished. There was a handful of people going to the office towards the end of the week, but the rest of the time we're working remotely. It was very frustrating. Obviously, they are a brilliant team, particularly on the production side, which is where I think most of the pressure has been. They got on with it, but it was frustrating for me because I felt I hadn't had a chance to get to know the newsroom at all. But newspapers are extraordinary beasts. They somehow or other, every time I pick up the Sunday Times on a Sunday morning, I think this is a miracle. How did we do that? Emma Tucker of the Sunday Times there in conversation with our own Tyler Brulé. A constructive approach to the future of print media, always welcome, of course, here at Monocle. Finally, on this programme, let's head back to Switzerland for a final highlight in this episode and to an organisation whose very bread and butter is crisis management, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Heading up the committee at its Geneva HQ since 2012 is Peter Maurer. Peter and Tyler began by discussing why brand management is so crucial. I I didn't want to go down the path of brand management, but it it does raise a question, and I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking of this now. Is there any type of measurement that is done in terms of people's recognition of a Red Cross or a Red Crescent, particularly obviously in zones of conflict as well? Is there a body of work that is done that, of course, no matter what side of the trenches people might be on, they understand the meaning of this red symbol on a, on a white backdrop, particularly if we're talking about uh, war zones, uh, no matter where they may be in the world. The best measurement at the end of the day is our ability to operate safely uh, in those war zones. If we have the license to operate from all sides in a conflict region, that's probably the best recognition of the brand as such, and is probably the best recognition for our colleagues who have done a great job in explaining what we are doing and being transparent with regard to what we are doing on both sides or on all sides of a conflict. We have most of the time more sides in today's conflicts. And so the the best measurement is at the end of the day to be Uh, radically non-political, which means to base a humanitarian action on objective needs of people, and then also to explain to all sides how we operate and to actually do what we say and to say what we do. These are important guidelines to ensure that we can operate safely. And I think despite all the difficulties and despite the challenges to the security of humanitarian workers, I wanted to recognize that within the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, we have still uh, relatively few incidents in which Red Cross and Red Crescent workers are victims which begs the question, uh, if, if you could almost create a pie chart, what percentage uh, of, when you look at the, the ICRC staff numbers, would be dedicated to diplomats almost in the, in the classic sense, so that, of course, people who are going into zones of conflict, who are negotiating, who are, of course, putting across the points uh, of all of the humanitarian needs to, of course, various factions that you have to deal with, what percentage are diplomats in, in the classic sense that we, un- we would understand them? 
We are roughly 20,000 staff at the ICRC today in roughly 86 countries. Out of the 20,000 staff, two and a half thousand are so-called mobiles. They have a characteristic lives in which they move from one conflict region to another. They are basically under mobility instruction. They go where needs is and they are managers in an organization. They are trained to negotiate at front lines. They are trained to negotiate access to populations. They are trained to negotiate with prison directors' accesses to prison and moduses operandi in prison. So that's what humanitarian diplomacy today is and compares then to maybe some some 17,000 who are local employees who I would say to a certain percentage as well are frontline workers and so I would consider the number almost 20 to 25% of us who have very substantive and not just logistical work in terms of assisting and protecting people, understanding contexts, uh, negotiating at frontline. So it's more than just the mobiles who are in character doing diplomatic work. Also, many of the locals today looking at uh, some subdelegations of ICRC have increasing responsibilities to be frontline diplomats, frontline negotiators. If we look, though, at those who are active in the big diplomatic centers in in capitals of big world powers, that's a a very small numbers. Some of those places where big international and multilateral institutions have their headquarters and where we are present to actually also defend and advocate for humanitarian issues and to generate understandings for the complexity of today's front lines. If I rewind for a moment, I was in Afghanistan in 1994 and had the very good fortune of being looked after by an ICRC team. We were not with one of your delegations, but we were, I would certainly say, saved by one of your delegations. And if I go back to Brand, it, it was quite extraordinary to watch. And if you think of Kabul in, in 1994, it was a variety of factions fighting for control. It was pre-Taliban, it was post-Russia, a bit of a forgotten war at the time. And and you were one of the only organizations that were there at the time in the middle of a of what had become also a very ugly conflict. But it was remarkable to see the, the power and the understanding of the brand, the presence that the brand had. And we had an incident where we were pulled over in your vehicles uh, on the way out of Afghanistan. And to watch the, the power of of negotiation. Of course, this faction wanted drugs out of the vehicles, and it went on for probably an hour at roadside. No no drugs were removed, nothing was given over, and we were able to go on our way. So when you talk about mobiles, those would be some of those individuals you're talking about, I would assume. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And I think that what you describe today is still very much a reality, although these realities in today's conflicts are slightly more complex in a sense that you see an increasing number of conflicts with more destructured groups and armed groupings, which make negotiations and frontline negotiations a more complex enterprise to look at. It's not just the Taliban and the government, as you have experienced it in Afghanistan. It's numbers of groupings and groups 
which today we are looking at and which are important to consult, to be in touch with, and to negotiate what I would call consensual humanitarianism. Because at the end of the day, acceptance and brand respect comes from this strong imperative that we are working by the consensus of those who control territories and populations. And we try to bring them together to minimal understanding of international humanitarian laws and principles. And so that's today, I would say, exactly still the same situation, although slightly more complex in contexts, for instance, like Syria or the Sahel or Somalia, where the fragmentation of groups today offers some additional challenges. Peter Maurer there of the ICRC in conversation with our own Tyler Brule. And that's all we have time for on today's special episode of The Chiefs. But we'll be back next week with more highlights from a bumper first year of interviews, including one with the Swiss president and the mayor of Athens. To dip into the full archive of episodes from the first season, head to monocle.com forward slash radio or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Edwards. You've been listening to The Chiefs on Monocle 24.